Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. We are back in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, at the last little story there, picking up in verse 43 to the end. We started our John series three months ago, and in that journey together, we have seen how God is introducing us to faith and how God is bringing faith to bear on people's lives you see the testimony of John the Baptist, the disciples even in their calling, as well as how they experienced the wine from water at the wedding, and they're, they're starting to believe the encounter with Nicodemus, who throughout the entire gospel you see kind of a journey for him, I believe, of faith. And last week we saw a very poignant, familiar story of the woman at the well who uh, Jesus has a moment with. Today is a story about a father whose son is sick and dying. That's what we encounter today. And all these stories, like this one, adds to that growing understanding of faith and how God builds faith and comes to give faith to people. But to be fair, nothing gets more real and intense than something like this when a parent's heart is fractured with the fear of the prospect of losing a child. And that's the tension in this particular narrative. Some of you listening right now know far too well the heartache of a sick child and the concerns about that child. Some of you, um, as bad as this is, have sat at the hospital bed and didn't even know how to think about your sick child. Or even worse than that, you've had to bury your child. So I don't even know how to get my head around that, but every bit of that emotion and heartache is in this story. I can't imagine that suffering, and I couldn't possibly imagine going through suffering like that if you didn't believe that God loves you and that he's sovereign over all things. If there was no bottom, if there was no end, it was just misery and then, I don't know how anyone would navigate that. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who had a lot of things to say in a a greater way than I would ever say about when you put your faith out there and test it, he said this, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It's easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you are merely using it as a cord to tie up a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? That's what we're talking about, faith. What do you believe in? And we have a story of a father who's desperate, and the situation is, is desperate. His son is dying. That is the, the, uh, the experience And what you see in this story is not only what Jesus does for this man, but what Jesus does to this man in the midst of this uh, event, which is just another example of the love of Christ for the hurting and how God grows faith in the hearts of his people. Um, Let's do this. Let's get a little running start at it and deal with some of the peripherals and deal with some questions that lead up to it. Jesus has just revealed himself to this woman, Uh, and told her that he's the Messiah, she runs into town and tells everybody, come and see the man who sees me. And the text says that many Samaritans believe the testimony. That's what it says in verse 39. Many Samaritans from the town believed him because of the woman's testimony. And then we read this, starting in verse 43. After the two days he he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. A couple questions should pop in your mind. One is, um, why did Jesus go where he wasn't wanted? 
And why suddenly now is Jesus welcomed by the Galatians or the Galileans when Jesus says he's not honored there, right? Seems reasonable. Well, the first question we answer is why did he go? Same reason why he went to meet the woman at the well. Remember what that was? Divine appointment. Jesus is on a mission to save his people from their sins. He's here to tell stories and to, to rescue lost hearts. This was not just like for the Samaritan woman, another divine appointment. The Galileans needed Jesus too, regardless of how they felt about him. And so did this man, by the way, who traveled many, many miles to see him. And why was he welcome when Jesus says a, a prophet's not without honoring his own hometown? Why would the Galatians, uh, Galileans receive him when they didn't welcome him um, ultimately? Well, here's why. The, the Galileans were into Jesus for superficial reasons. This is a classic reason why people get close to Jesus. Love the magic. Love what he does. I mean, who wouldn't? You hear the story about water turning to wine at a wedding. You hear the story on the streets of people being healed by this man. Regardless of how the hometown folks felt about the hometown boy, they were warm to the magic. And they were there for those superficial reasons. They were there for the show. There's another question that you, we probably should answer is if you're paying attention to the text and if you've read through this ahead of time, you've got kind of in a parenthesis around the story is the, the continual connection on John's part in the story from the wine at the wedding to this healing. He says in verse 46, so he came to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water and the wine. That's the first reference. And in ver verse uh, 54, this now... This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he was come from Judea to Galilee. Now he's kind of grabbing the story of water to wine at the wedding and attaching it here. Why would he do that? I believe that John wants you and I to understand the reality of how Jesus applies to every situation in life. Not just, Jesus is not just for weddings, but he's for sickbeds. If you want to talk about the gamut of human experience, joy to sorrow, the whole gamut, Jesus shows up for those stories the complete, total picture of what it is to be human. But let's be honest. Most of our best lessons and our best growth in faith don't happen during weddings, do they? Or during the good times. When things are smooth. They happen when we run out of options. When we've exhausted ourselves. And perhaps you kind of like me. I'm by nature a fix-it guy. I start with what I can do. And end up empty-handed. That's how it works for me as far as the way I work. I'm not saying I'm proud of it. It's just the way it works. What can I do? How can I fix it? How can I make it better? And uh-oh, I got no options. I have no answers. And clearly that's kind of the journey for us in our faith walk. And James talks about this. Perhaps you remember. Consider it joy when you encounter trials of various kinds, trouble of various kinds, because you know that that trouble does what to your faith? It grows it. It tests it. It puts it out there perseverance, development. That's what those troubled times do. And let's just be really, really clear. Difficulty is how all of our faith journey starts. It could be something circumstantial, some crisis like this man's going through, and we'll see that in a minute. Regardless whether it's a real thing, there's a crisis of the heart. There's a moment when you've done, try, done trying life in all your other kind of ways and it doesn't matter how successful you are, you still go, there's something missing. That is a personal crisis of the heart. 
And even in that trouble is the way that God leans you into something bigger, something grander, someone better, who is Jesus. That's the way it starts for everyone. This man's story is a very simple story. It's a father who is desperate. Anybody ever been there? Some of you have. Some of you have. And I think it's a beautiful portrait of faith. So let's look at it. This is how the story begins. It starts with this man's trouble. Verse 46. So he, this is Jesus. He came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine and at Capernaum where the where there was a official whose son was ill. Here's the crisis, pretty simple. The man's son was dying, sick and dying. And there's a reason why this official goes on a 22-mile or so trip to see Jesus. It's a word. It's called desperation. I don't have any other options. I don't have any other hope. I've exhausted every other way. And by the way, it's important to note that word official there. There was an official. Other versions say nobleman or other versions say kingsman. It was an official in Herod's court. Either way, this man was used to having enough resources to solve his problems. So he's out of options. He's desperate. He's exhausted. And he's going to the only shot he believes he has left, right? He had what we call in our world the trifecta of human achievement, power, influence, and money. If you want to get by on your own, you have those three things, you typically win, humanly speaking. This guy had all of it, and he was desperate. None of it was working, right? He had the means to see things done. From time to time, you probably, like me, experience where you need something done, and you talk to someone who knows someone, and they go, I know somebody. They always sound like they're from New York when they say it. Like, they know somebody. This guy knew somebody. He had a series of people he knew who could answer the question or solve the problem or bring a solution to something. He was typically used to getting what he wanted. All I had to do, all he had to do was command it. He was a power broker. He was a man with authority. Just point and shoot. That's what I'm used to. Okay? But this noble man has a problem bigger than his power, his influence, and his money. It's a great reminder that no matter, no amount of money can buy a trouble-free life, can it? Can I get an amen? I mean, it's, it's a very miserable thing to discover that, but it is true. Someone wiser than me said money can buy a king-sized bed, but it can't buy sleep which is a great reminder that it doesn't matter. And, and I thought this too, and this might be true, the bigger your bed gets, so is your trouble. Remember when you were little, and you had that tiny little bed, no trouble? The bed gets bigger, trouble. It's probably connected to the bed. I just lose the bed and life will be better. Money can buy a mansion, it can't buy a home. Money can buy lots of books, it can't buy brains. You can do the math, right? It's always true. No amount of money could buy a trouble free life, and for this father, no amount of money could buy the life of his son. So in his desperation, he looked at his position, his influence, and his money and goes, it's pointless. When I need it most, it doesn't work. Right? Ever been there? Yeah. So when it all boils down, here's what I want you to see. Regardless of what he's called in here, the official, the nobleman, you know, one of the kingsmen, all this guy was was a desperate father who really, really loved his kid. 
That's all that's going on here. Okay, verse 47. I want you to notice the man's attitude. This is significant, specifically since you see who he was by title. Verse 47 says, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Um, Jesus heard more than just Jesus was in the area. He had heard about the water turned to wine. He had heard about the miracles of people who have encountered Jesus. Um, The power to heal the sick in Luke 4 and Matthew 15, both of those gospel writers say over and over again, Jesus went everywhere he went, he healed everyone. Now, I don't know if that's just an exaggerated way to say lots of people, most everyone, But regardless, there was such a growing reputation of the healing power of Jesus, no doubt that this man heard it and heard the story of of this man named Jesus. And so what makes him walk or ride 22 miles from the north side of the Sea of Galilee to where Jesus was, was that. But I want you to notice the humility in it, that he went himself speaks volumes. He didn't know Jesus, never met Jesus. He uh, only knew of a particular reputation. He doesn't even know if he shows up that Jesus will have the time for him. He is just throwing a Hail Mary. Do you understand? He's trying to make it work. He's used to, by his his position, sending people to do things for him, but he goes himself. And there's only one reason why an official like this would go himself. His son is dying and he's frantic, just like you and me. It's exactly what's happening. And by the way, just to stop and make a point, where does your faith blossom? In these same kind of waters, right? Uh, I'm frantic. And God says, wait, and you don't want to wait. And yet you can't do anything else but wait. And what does he do in long term? He wins. And you grow. Notice also about this man's humility. Not only did he go himself, but he admits something even by his going that his power and his position and his money can't solve his problem. That's just a loud and clear sermon he's preaching here. But I want you to see a particular word. Um, it, it says it so kind of benignly that he went to him and asked him in verse 47. Do you see that word asked? Different versions have a better rendering of that word. The word is begged. The idea of the tense of that word is begging, like kept begging. It's different than asked. Asked seems like just kind of, hey, if you got a minute, you know. No, this man has got way more intensity involved in what he's asking. He's begging him. He's dying. His son is dying. He has the inability to do anything about it. And all that situation turns a powerful man, watch, into a beggar, which is true of everyone spiritually. Everyone starts wherever they are. And what ends up happening in the wonderful good news of the gospel is that we all become beggars to get the love of Christ. Right? To admit our need and admit our sin. That's how it works. If you could just play out this kind of asking or this kind of begging, what would it sound like? I mean, think about it. I can only speak for myself, but like, Jesus, can you come? I need you. My son needs you, please. And I'm certain he's distracted with hundreds of others, people, other people pulling on him for their needs, and yet I want my need heard first, so I'm yelling louder, I'm pulling harder. Please, Jesus. This man didn't care how he looked. He didn't care about the indignity of that thing. I mean, normally, he would be kind of invited to special places to talk to the important, 
But here he is in the crowd of beggars, and he's begging louder. The whole thing is undignified for a nobleman. Do you see the gospel echoes here? Desperation and humility are what the Holy Spirit produces in us to see Christ, and that's true. Perhaps it sounded like this in your head when you believed, Jesus, Jesus, please, please. Right? Same kind of words, same kind of begging, same kind of pleading for the forgiveness of God for our sins. I want you to notice next that Jesus is faithful to take the man wherever he starts and grow his faith. Look at verse 48 and 49. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Does that answer from Jesus sound uh, weird to you? Does it bother you at all? Insensitive? I mean, after all, the man's pleading for his son's life, and Jesus simply says to him in verse uh, 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. What an odd way to respond to a request to rescue my child. It's important to know that when Jesus is saying this to the man, the word you in the sentence, do you see that? Unless you see signs and wonders and you will not believe, that word is a plural word. It's better read this way. Unless you people see signs, you people will not believe. He's talking to more than the man. He's talking to everyone in that crowd. The crowd is there. I already told you this. The crowd is there because they want the magic show. These people who do not receive him because he's not without honor in his own hometown, they're there welcoming him in for one reason, what he does. We want to see the miracles. And this man is there to get a miracle. Do you see? But you tell me, who is there for Jesus? Nobody. The statement is like from Jesus to them, like, hey, listen, is anybody seeing me for who I am? I mean, this whole story of John is about the deity of Christ, that he is God come in the flesh. He is the word who was in the beginning. Nobody sees me. I wish you were here for me, not the miracles. This man, like all the other Galatians, weren't there for worship. This guy was there for practical reasons. My son is sick. But Jesus knows something about this man. He knows something about us as well, which is profound. He knows that there's a need and a sickness far, far greater than what he's there for. You're here for real pragmatic reasons. Your son is sick, but there's another sickness, the sickness of the heart. And you didn't come for that, but I am. I'm going to deal with that. So you have to see this the way Jesus meant it. It wasn't harsh, it was love. It, to the man, whatever this nobleman's name was, your desperation is greater than you could possibly, possibly fathom because it goes down to the core of who you are. So I want you to see this as the love of Christ. Jesus was not going to allow this man not to, not to be saved. Do you understand? Something was going to happen beyond his request. And by the way, don't, don't miracles serve this purpose? They serve the purpose to do nothing but point to Jesus. They're always revealing Jesus. They're always showing Jesus. You and I live in a world, you know this, right? Don't believe it unless you see it, right? And with faith in Christ, it works the other way around. You believe it, and then. Jesus is going to do that work for this man, 
giving the gift of faith, which takes us to the kind of fourth thing I want you to see about this man's faith. Faith comes down to trusting the words of Jesus. Look at verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. That verse is ridiculous. Put yourself in the position of the desperate father. This is what happens. This is so profound. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word of Jesus that he spoke to him and went on his way. Here's what the desperate father understands. Just a couple things. My son's dying. I believe you can help. And I don't know anything more than that. That's as simple as I'm working with right here. And Jesus' response is kind of a negative response, a positive response, and a command in just a few short words, like five words. Here's the negative response. It's implied by the answer. The man says, come. The implied answer is, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to do that. The man thought, if you come, he's got a chance. That's all I've ever heard. Wherever you show up, Jesus, water turns to wine, people get healed. So you've got to come with me. Jesus says, no, I'm not doing it. And he moves this man's faith, get this, with the answer of no. That's going to come to play later, okay? But that's important to hang on to. The positive response that he gives is explicit. Your son will live. Which, to be honest, is the greatest kind of so what to your request in in the world. And then this command, this absurd command, go. Now, I may be speculating here, but I don't think I'm far off. Do you think the father was immediately relieved by what Jesus said, or do you think that he was thrown off by the go? (laughs) Wait a minute, Jesus. You mean go without you? Is that what you're talking about? You mean I'm just supposed to trust what you say? Is that how this works? You got to come with me. Am I just supposed to trust you? This is not at all what I had in mind. Now, you're smart enough to see the miraculous in this passage. And there are several miracles taking place in front of our eyes here. But if you're not careful, you miss what has just taken place in the Father's heart which is the biggest miracle of all, this miracle of conversion, this miracle of faith. The text simply says two things, profound things. He believed the word of Jesus and he obeyed. (laughs) That's amazing to me, which is kind of the next thing I want you to see in this is look what happens to this faith of his when Jesus speaks. It's amazing. In fact, these two thoughts in, in verse 50 that he believed and he went on his way blow my mind how this man responded to Jesus' word. One is at the end of verse 50. You notice the phrase. It's such a throwaway line, but it's profound. And he went on his way. (laughs) Really? You know the the kind of the, the mood behind this, the demeanor behind this phrase is kind of a picture of peaceful, calm, almost meandering off? Do you understand? That picture does not fit with the desperation, does it? Unless what? Faith. You don't just walk off calmly unless you believe something deeply. And that's what's happened to this man. I would have to admit, myself, I would have been one reluctant to leave. No, 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 we're going with plan A. You're coming with me. I'd have been really persistent. And even if I couldn't win that one, I wouldn't have meandered anywhere. 
I'd have been hightailing at home, heart beating in my chest, like, oh my gosh, my son, my son. Amazing testimony. It's not what the father did. Look at verse 51. And he was going down. His servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. The word recovering in this version, an ESV, doesn't do it justice. In fact, there are other versions, like New American Standard says living. The New Living Translation says alive and well. Either way, the kind of implication behind this event is a perfect healing. Jesus said, on the go, and his kid, 25 miles away, was made well. In fact, the text says, clearly, his fever left him. He was healed immediately, precisely when Jesus spoke, which is the second thing I want you to see about this amazing uh, sequence of events, and you've got to see this. This man's heart was so changed completely in that moment that even though Capernaum was 22, 24 miles away, the text says it was the seventh hour, which is 1 p.m., which meant if he walked quickly, he could get home in six hours, or if he rented a horse, he could be home in three or four hours. And this man stayed overnight. He's traveling home the next day. Something about the words of Christ, something about the faith that God produced in this man meant it's all good. I believe him. And he stayed overnight. And he's walking home to his son the day after. Are you getting the amazing work of faith that God is producing in a desperate father? It's an amazing story. To be fair, just to make another comparison, this is how conversion works. Now, I understand you get saved somewhere and then you got this progression. You grow in your understanding. You grow in that stuff. But truly, from death to life, this is how it works. You know this. You hear the word of Christ, the Holy Spirit hammers it home, and you're made brand new. That sequence is how God saves. You understand? Your story of conversion, your sickness spiritually is healed the exact same way. Jesus says something and you wake up. It's every person's story who knows Christ. Maybe you're like me. Maybe it's just me, but I spend my life saying, God, show me something. Show me more. Maybe it's I just have this, you know, I don't know, puny version of faith. I want to go deeper. Show me more. But here's a, a powerful point not to miss. One theologian put it this way, Christ's word is as good as his presence. And that's a great reminder. Sometimes we think, no, 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 no. If Jesus would come here in this room, if Jesus would show up in my hospital room, if Jesus could show up in my finances, if Jesus, Jesus, Jesus could be, well, the word is as good as his presence. He spoke. He spoke, and the man's life was changed personally and in his family. And that's true for us, right? He speaks into the darkness of our hearts, and we're resurrected and that's a miracle greater than this boy's healing. There's one last thing that I want you to see about this man's faith, which is a big encouragement to me and, and hopefully to you. The faith that God provides always has collateral blessing. Look at verse 53, end of 53. 
And he himself believed in all of his household. There's three miracles in this story. The son's healing, obviously. The father's belief, and now the whole household. That means brothers, sisters, wife, servants, the whole tribe of people believed. This man believed so completely in Jesus that he compelled his entire family to believe. Is that a miracle to you? Is it a surprise to you? You know these stories too because in your radical conversion, you used to be, no, no harm here, a total chucklehead. And something happens. And you're around other people at the chucklehead meeting and they go, man, there's something different about you. You don't think the same. You don't talk the same. You do other things. You go, yeah, it's wild. This man named Jesus. That's how it works. And they look at you and they go, wow, I've always asked, right? And you have these conversations. And then people, collateral blessings. People, your wife and your children or your friends or coworkers or your mom or your dad and on and on it goes. The blessings of Jesus' grace are collateral. The story plays out perfectly in my mind, right? It's a great movie. It's a great short story. The boy's, the boy's healed. The father is saved and the whole household believes. Win, 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 right? 21 to nothing. Touchdown, touchdown, touchdown. All wonderful. Let me just stop and make a point. We can love this story for the same reason the crowds welcomed him in Galilee. Same reasons. Jesus can make everything work out all right. Amen? Amen. Right? Some people come to Jesus, even the one we're talking about, and go, I've got these problems. Can he solve my problems? And you miss him as Savior. We, we look at how, gosh, he wants me to be happy or healthy or rich or whatever, and some people come to Jesus for the same reason the Galileans would. I want to see it. I want to see it. But if that's what it is, then I think we missed the point of the whole story. I don't have to tell you that every prayer for help doesn't get answered in the same way as this story, do I? Jesus help and then it all gets fixed. All within a day. All within a moment. You and I have walked with Jesus long enough to know that's not typical. The point of this story isn't to have Jesus solve everything immediately for you. The point of the story is that the word of Christ is faithful and true. Can I get an amen? Now here's what you just confessed. That means that no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how they turn out, you've just declared his word being faithful and true. We don't trust in the outcomes. We trust in the one who controls the outcomes. It's a big difference. A slight change of words, but a big, big difference. We ask him for whatever we ask him. We ask him what we need. We ask him what we think. We ask him in our desperation. We ask in our concern. I understand that. But many times we wait. But we don't ever forget we wait for our good and his glory. We say it all the time. This pulpit, all it ever does is say those things. This entire narrative in John starts um, with the word in the beginning, who is Jesus. The word is God, who is Jesus. The word made everything. The word is the light to men. The whole point of John's gospel is to reveal Jesus for who he is. He is the sovereign one. 
Every bit of your story is in his hands. Whether your child is sick and recovers in a word or whether he doesn't. The one who works and weaves all the threads of our life into the display of grace for the world to see or the glory of God to be praised, that is what he's doing. And in being gracious and glorious, sometimes answers sound like this one. Go. He's fine. And sometimes it's, wait, not yet. And sometimes it's, no, I'm doing other things. That's the reality of what it is to trust the Father, to believe that he's in control, and to love it. Sometimes, as Job reminds us, sometimes he gives, sometimes he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He is great, and he's good, and he knows what he's doing. The Apostle Paul kind of mentions that in Romans 11. Listen to this. Tell me this is a great way to wrap our thoughts around just that point, that truth, that the word of Christ is faithful and true and can be trusted. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. Can you say amen to that? How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. Who can know the Lord's thoughts and who knows enough to give him advice and who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his powers and intended for his glory, all glory to him forever and ever. Amen. Will you say amen with me? Amen. Let's thank him for that truth. God, we see a a, a man um, with a real desperate concern. And nobody understands being concerned for children like you do. And yet, even in this wonderful picture of faith, we see our story, how just one word from Jesus brings life. We're testimonies to that. But God, even even if uh, this worked out just perfectly in order for this nobleman, the point is that Jesus' words are true and they're faithful. So God, for us who ask of you, and see these immediate responses that are the things we want to hear, God, let us recognize that it was your goodwill to do so, and we praise you for it. When, Father, we ask, and it seems like there's a lid on heaven, and we ask and we ask, and it's a wait or it's a no, God, help us conclude the same thing, that your words are faithful and true, and you deserve all praise and honor and glory. And that's what we do right now, Father. We ascribe it to you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.